Crowther. I'm Jamie Drucker. And I'm Faye Harrison. Welcome to Legitimately Interesting, the new podcast from the Bristow's Data Protection Team. Now, we realise that we are slightly setting ourselves a challenge by promising to be interesting uh, on this podcast, but we're going to give it a darn good try. Um, The idea of this podcast is that around once a month, we'll be releasing a new episode which addresses sort of interesting issues in data protection law, lots of practical advice and explanations. We're going to try and keep it topical um, so that by listening to this podcast, you can stay up to date with this very rapidly changing area of law. Each episode, we'll try and keep it to around 20 minutes so that you can easily listen on your commute, on the nursery drop-off, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Um, Now, when we sat down to talk about what we thought should be the very first episode, to be honest, we sort of felt like there was only one answer and that it had to be generative AI. So that is artificial intelligence capable of generating text, images, really any other media. Um, And this technology has just exploded so much in the past six months. Uh, It's mostly, to be honest, still largely just fun novelty value. But I think so shortly we're going to see it being embedded into really just everyday workflows. Um, Some of you listening um, might have already heard the Bristow's Roadmap podcast, where we do also talk about generative AI. Um, If you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to have a listen. Um, But today we're going to be doing much more of a deeper dive into the data protection issue specifically, um, because we are all self-confessed data protection geeks and it is what we love. Um, So, Jamie, to start, uh, why do you think that um, generative AI is becoming a particular issue for data protection lawyers, DPOs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I think perhaps it's not always obvious when you use one of these tools, creating text or or images, why data protection is important and why privacy rights and privacy issues are central to the analysis. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that there is potential for significant processing of personal data both in terms of how these tools are developed in the first place and then in terms of the inputs and outputs. So in terms of how the tools are developed, they are trained on very large data sets. Um, very large data sets usually involve lots of personal data. We're, we're talking really very, very large here, aren't we, as well? We're talking like millions, sometimes billions of files, just to give people an idea of scale. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, The reason these tools are so effective is because they're trained on such big data sets, it's essentially a, a kind of scrape the entire internet scenario. And so that, you know, for the model to work properly, it, it has to look at a lot of personal data that's out there. Um, and so that's the first part of it. And then when you're actually using the tool itself, you might be inputting prompts that involve personal data that include people's information. And then also, depending on the nature of the tool itself, some of the output, some of the text or the images or whatever it may be, may also involve personal data. So there's a lot of personal data being processed. That's the first thing to say. I guess the second point is that the legal framework, when we think about what is the legal framework regulating generative AI, it's still currently quite limited. So we've seen some regulations on generative AI in China, but that's probably a bit of an outlier at the moment in terms of hard law that, that's, that's actually been adopted. The, um, the EU AI Act, the proposed uh, EU legislation to deal with AI, is going to be very, very significant. And it's going to regulate certain high risk 
uh, AI activities, but that is not yet adopted. It's currently in the trilogue process between the EU institutions. And once that's adopted, which may be later this year, beginning of next year, there's going to be a lengthy grace period somewhere between 24 and 36 months is the current estimate. So um, we're probably talking 2025, 2026 at the earliest before that becomes uh, becomes hard law. And worth noting as well that it, it won't apply in the UK. It's an EU act. Um, and at the moment, at least, um, the kind of position that UK is trying to take is to sort of present itself as a kind of innovation hub and that they don't want to, at least at the moment, have a specific law to regulate um, AI and yeah. generative AI. That, that's exactly right. So the, the UK is going a slightly different way and we're going to see different jurisdictions taking different approaches. Um, in terms of where that leaves you, without a, you know, a piece of hard law, there is a patchwork of existing laws, sector frameworks, and the GDPR kind of appears to offer the best and most robust framework to regulate generative AI, at least for the time being. Um, it's got proper penalties, it's got proper enforcement structures, you know, it's, it's, it's well set up uh, in that respect. So, so it's, it's kind of filling a legal vacuum. Um, and also the thing about the GDPR is when, when you think about some of the core principles, they are capable of being applied somewhat flexibly. If you think about a principle like fairness, um, that has always brought in broader issues than just data protection issues. It's always brought in kind of ethical considerations, thinking about the best interests of the individuals, uh, those kind of issues. So it's actually quite suitable in some respects to, mm -hmm. to regulate AI. Um, and then I suppose, you know, the final thing is um, who, who's best placed internally within organisations to actually bring this to life and to actually uh, do, do the risk assessments and, and embed these tools and do what needs to be done from a legal perspective. And um, I'm going to take this opportunity to, to big up data protection lawyers and always. say, always, <laughs> always, and say that we are, I think, pretty well suited and pretty capable of uh, at least assisting an organisation with the legal reviews that need to be undertaken around generative AI. Certainly that follows from what you were just saying in terms of GDPR being the most sort of applicable legislation is that, you know, we're dealing with GDPR on a day to day basis. It's our kind of bread and butter. And so if that's the law that we're going to be using to fill this vacuum, as you talked about, it makes sense that it would then be data protection lawyers who are going to be advising on that law. 100 percent. And also, that if you think about the type of work that we do when advising on the GDPR, much of it is about risk assessing. It's about balancing rights. It's about looking at issues like transparency. And so there's a lot of crossover when it comes to uh, how we're going to think about generative AI when embedding it within organisations. Uh, and so with all that in mind, Faye, let's say you put yourself in the position of in-house counsel or an organisation, you've got your business coming to you saying, I hear generative AI is going to be quite a big deal. We'd like to, we'd like to start using it, please. What sort of issues should, be, should you be thinking about at the outset? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a lot to think about when it comes to using generative AI tools. Um, this is obviously a privacy podcast, so we're going to focus on the data protection issues. Um, but there are wider considerations around things like confidentiality, intellectual property, um, security and safety, and also the kind of contract terms um, when you're entering into any kind of agreement for this type of technology. So there's a lot to think about. Um, but focusing um, for the purposes of this podcast on data protection, um, it really does depend on how you're going to deploy the generative AI. Um, is it something you're just going to use for your employees internally or is it something you're going to make available to third parties? 
So some examples of that might be um, in terms of a third party tool integrating generative AI into an existing product so that you can provide customers with additional functionality, perhaps using a chatbot, something like that. Or alternatively, use by employees in the context of performing their own day-to-day work. Um, So this could be things like writing text, developing marketing slogans, creating images. There's a whole host of things that your employees might be doing on a day-to-day basis where this technology would be helpful. So I think the first thing to do when you're considering these type of technologies is think about who's going to be providing that technology. Who's the supplier? Are you looking at more than one? Um, And when I say the supplier, I mean the organization that's developed the generative AI tool and has trained the model using data. Um, So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the supplier. One of the first things from a data protection point of view to think about is, is that supplier going to be a controller or a processor where you're inputting personal data into the tool? And you find that a lot of suppliers will try and position themselves as a processor. This means less kind of compliance responsibility. They want to push everything onto the customer. But it's worth thinking about whether that is actually the case, if that aligns with what's happening in practice. For example, a supplier might use any personal data that you input into that tool to further train the algorithm to improve their own tool. They could be wearing both hats though, right? In some cases, you could have a control, you could have say an organization that's maybe a controller just for that development phase, but then for only perhaps ring fence data and then a processor to provide the product still or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. They, They could be wearing two hats. So it's just about being clear Um, on when they are a controller and when they're a processor and making sure any kind of contractual terms and how you work with the tool in practice is aligned with that. Um, Another thing to think about just more generally is whether that supplier has actually thought about data protection concerns themselves and whether they understand data protection implications and what measures they've taken to address this. So sort of taking a look at what they say on their website, in their marketing materials, any documentation they've provided Ask them questions, you know, have you put these measures in place? Ask for evidence that they have carried out compliance so that you can be comfortable that you're using a tool that does comply with data protection law, or at least enables you to when you're using that tool. And I, mean, I think depending on the supplier that you're dealing with and how sophisticated they are, you, you may bump up against that attitude you hear sometimes, which is, oh, we've trained it all on public data. So therefore, yes. privacy concerns or data protection concerns haven't been so central. Obviously, we all know that's not the correct approach. And hopefully, you know, the, the, the major players when it comes to generative AI are all on board with that idea. But you've got to be quite careful with that kind of thinking, I think. Definitely. Yeah. And it's good to sort of get that information. You know, what data have they trained their algorithm on? Um, are there any wider issues around things like bias? Um, we've seen, for example, models that generate images that have been accused of kind of amplifying stereotypes around race and gender when they create, say, images of humans. So there's, there's so much to think about when you're doing your due diligence. I think also in terms of the contract, when, we, when we're looking at this as lawyers, what does it say in terms of data protection? Is there anything that covers data protection, which is obviously pretty fundamental? Um, Are there any limits in that contract on what the supplier can do with any data that you input? And also, if they are presenting themselves as a processor, have they included the mandatory processor terms under Article 28 of the GDPR? So lots to think about, as I say, and sort of 
more broadly, does the tool enable your own compliance with core data protection principles as an organisation? So, again, looking at things like accuracy is a, is a core data protection principle um, and something that has definitely come up in terms of uses of generative AI. We've seen lots of examples of large language models generating false information that people have relied on, um, that kind of thing. And also things like data retention. Are you going to be able to delete your data in line with your internal data retention policies? You know, the list goes on and on, but there's a lot to think about. And I think on that note, I'm going to hand over to Hannah to talk about the sort of next stage in the process once you've decided to onboard one of these tools. Thanks, Faye. So, okay, everyone in the organization is really excited because you've, you've made that sort of, you've made that go, no go decision. You, you want to go ahead. What next? So since as, as hopefully everyone aware, this is a data protection podcast. We're going to assume that this use case involves both putting data in, so there's an input element, and also getting personal data out. Now, we could, and I really hope I get to have this conversation one day, have a really exciting conversation about at what point kind of fictional data crosses over into personal data. But let's assume for this purpose that everything that you get out is that there's a potential to get out personal data as well. Say two practical examples might be, for example, if you're using it internally, um, a AI tool that can write development reviews, let's say, for employees. Or if you're using it externally, maybe it's a B2C product that, I don't know, allows you to put in a photo and it'll make it all, it'll turn it into a cartoon, let's say, something like that. Um, so you've got personal data in that context, both being provided and you've got personal data that is being created by the tool. Now, the first thing I think you want to do is a data protection impact assessment, or at least one of the first things. I think that um, regardless of sort of where you land uh, on a sort of broader question about generative AI, I think it still fits very squarely within that Article 35 trigger. It's a new and it's in innovative technology. And whether you genuinely believe that we are at risk of sort of human extinction as a result, I think you can't deny there are some risks and that you'd need to do that DPIA, or at least every regulator would expect you to. And I think the phenomenally useful documents, DPIAs, um, and so they should really help you tease out the key compliance issues. Um, so, I mean, I think, sorry, just to interject, I think there's a practical question around how the DPIA and your, your, your structure for doing a DPIA may fit into a wider risk assessment you might need to do around the AI tool itself. So is the DPIA now just one part of a much broader AI assessment? Is the DPIA flexible enough that it can kind of cover all of those wider elements? So organisations are going to have to think quite carefully if they start rolling out these tools on a more regular basis about, from a governance perspective, how these two review frameworks might fit together. Absolutely. Yeah. DPIA might only be part of what probably becomes a AIIA. Does that right? An AI impact assessment? AI something like that. Yeah. We're going to have to come up with a snappier title, but an AIIA. Um, so your DPIA, though, let's assume, let's start small at least. Thinking about your lawful basis, um, it does depend on your use case. Legitimate interest is probably quite a strong likelihood there, particularly if you're inputting, say, third-party data in, um, and so you're not in a position to get that user's consent, or if there's an imbalance of power. So with employees, you're probably also looking at legitimate interest. You might be able to get consent. So in that example of uploading photos uh, in a sort of a consumer basis, you can probably get their consent. But again, what about if there are third parties features in those images? Can I upload a picture of me and my mates? Something like that. So you still you might be falling back on LI uh, again, legitimate interest again. 
Think about performance of a contract if you're embedding this in a service that you're offering to people. But just bear in mind the recent you know, EDPB decision on strictly necessary to perform a contract. So really, you know, think quite hard about, about whether that fits. Then moving on, fairness and transparency. Now, whenever people talk about AI and generative AI, there is a lot of talk about fairness. I think it is worth briefly thinking about what that means because it's not defined. And I think it gets a word that gets bandied around quite a lot. I think, and I'm just, you know, my view of fairness has always been that it's about not disadvantaging people in a way that they can't control. And I think that that's where transparency comes in, because often if you don't understand something or you're not aware of it, you definitely can't control it. So think about, can you embed more fairness into this by perhaps giving people a bit more agency and transparency over it? In the perhaps rather silly development review example, can people look at what happens afterwards and perhaps correct it or edit it, object to it, something like that? So if you can think about ways of embedding more fairness into that, giving people more agency over their data, that could really help. And I think um, obviously th- those things you've been talking about are to do with the data subjects themselves and the people whose data is going to be utilised by the tool. Um, but there's also, when we're talking about kind of policies and documents you need to implement, there's um, restrictions on kind of use by, say, employees if you're using an, an, a tool in-house. So you may want to have an acceptable use policy that kind of sets out how they can and can't use that tool Um, But also thinking about sort of training and educating those users, because obviously there'll be lots of people who work in an organisation who've maybe used generative AI in a kind of personal context for fun. And they've put, you know, prompts about themselves and asked it to create poems about themselves or whatever it is and sort of making them kind of rethink about what this tool actually is in a work context and what it's appropriate to include when you're inputting data and the kind of risks if they are inputting personal data and and all those sorts of issues. I mean, depending on the organisation, acceptable use policy plus training may actually be insufficient. You know, if you've got an organisation with a conservative approach to risk, maybe in a regulated sector like financial services, you might have to think about, um, you know, logging inputs and outputs from the tool, having actual technical controls preventing employees from using the tool for certain purposes or for inputting certain types of text into the tool. So they're just these additional things you might have to think about from a technical control perspective as well. And I think that is absolutely the case in particular if you think there's a risk of special category data being used. That's You've got a much harder bar to get there on lawful basis. So it's really, really worth thinking what additional controls do you need where you've got any special category data. So if you think some of these controls, they can help with fairness. What about transparency? Obviously, you've got to think about your existing, you've probably got an existing privacy policy. You've got an employee privacy policy, possibly. But I think with something that's so sort of exciting and new and different as generative AI, it would always be worth thinking about whether you need a new standalone communication of some description to give people just a little bit more a concrete awareness. So I think this probably isn't a situation where you're just tucking something into your privacy policy or relying on existing language and you might have to do a bit more um, to really get that across and at risk of overcomplicating things <laughs> obviously if you're a service provider and you're embedding a tool within an existing service you may yourself be a processor acting on behalf of some enterprise clients so then when you think about transparency and a privacy notice you have to think about well is it my privacy notice is it my client's privacy notice they're kind of leaning on me because I'm the one that's embedding the tool so how do those two things work together? That's not easy. Yeah. That, that, that needs to be unpicked. Absolutely. And I think some of those things will probably 
we're at a particular stage now where people don't have a very clear understanding of these. So it's always so much more important. There will come a point where perhaps people people are much more comfortable with this tool and they have a much greater understanding. At the moment, you're having to do that much more to really explain to people who may have no idea how this stuff works. So I do think transparency is, is perhaps more important now than ever, really. Um, then the final one let's think about is, is data subjects rights. So particularly in the output of that content, usually we'd, we'd be thinking about that. So can people have access to it? Where will it be stored? Will it be retained? And so think about how long it will be retained and whether people say might have a right to delete that content in the future. Because of course, the generative AI tool is creating new content that you might not have had to have dealt with before or thought about where it's being stored and how that fits into security and, and granting those access and, and erasure requests and that sort of thing. Now, I think probably it's been a bit clear, particularly from the interaction that, that um, Faye and Jamie and I have had, that this isn't all entirely straightforward. And I think this feeds into what Jamie was saying earlier, the GDPR is filling a bit of a vacuum and it's not, you know, there are areas of tension. There are some quite tricky areas here. So as a sort of final thought, what, Jamie, are your views on what's the regulators are saying about this? Is there any guidance? Is there been any sort of is there anything concrete that we can point to and say this is this is what you need to do? Yeah, I mean, I think when we think about regulatory risk, I think sometimes as lawyers, we can be at risk of being a bit overly negative. You know, regulators start making some noises. You know, saber rattling a little bit about a new a new tool or a new technology and we start getting a bit overly concerned i, th I think the reality that that we're in here is that these tools are firstly very exciting and potentially very useful have enormous potential and they're being used already so we just all have to kind of bear that in mind when we think about regulatory risk what we're trying to do is help people use them safely and build in the right review and governance frameworks rather than um sort of panicking when data protection regulators make somewhat negative noises about compliance. Um, in terms of what the regulators are, are saying, what data protection regulators are saying, obviously AI risk is not something that's new to data protection regulation. Um, there have been mul multiple opinions, you know, pieces of regulatory guidance produced over recent years about AI generally, about machine learning. Um, clearly, Generative AI is a bit newer, um, and we haven't seen that much you know, out there at the moment. To, there isn't much sort of uh, detailed guidance for us to grapple with. That being said, I think what we can say is that data protection regulators are giving this a lot of attention. So, for example, we, talk, we saw some early action from the Italian Data Protection Authority, the Garante. They banned ChatGPT for a time, sought some assurances from OpenAI about how that was all working before they reinstated it. We've seen statements from other regulators like the ICO, kind of fairly high level, but about the type of thing they're expecting organizations to do when it comes to using these tools. We've seen the EDPB at the European level looking to deploy, you know, their consistency and cooperation when it comes to um, how these tools are regulated. So they've set up a task force to look at um, chat GPT and similar tools. Sadly, we have to say that the data protection regulators in Europe are, are not known for their speed, are they? So I wouldn't, I think, you know, I, I don't think it's particularly surprising given the speed of this technology that they haven't put out detailed guidance. Yeah, I mean, it's so difficult for them to keep up because the minute they do put something out, they're already behind because the technology just develops so quickly. And I think sometimes we do see these kind of slightly knee-jerk decisions. Um, you know, for example, the the banning of ChatGPT, as you mentioned, because they want to show that they're doing something. And then there's a sort of a case of 
unpicking it afterwards and and sort of looking at how sort of more realistic guidance can be put in place um but it is it yeah it's it's inherently very difficult for them to provide guidance that's actually in line with sort of the technology that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis um and that then makes it really difficult for those who are using these tools to know how to comply because they don't have that guidance to kind of direct themselves to and reassure them that they're doing the right thing. And so I think all that we can say to people in that position is to sort of cover the things we've talked about, you know, make sure you've got all your ducks in a row, make sure you've done your DPIA and that you've kind of complied with data protection laws as far as you can. Um, and Just sort of keep up to date with guidance and decisions that are going on, because inevitably it's going to keep changing and it's all quite unpredictable. Yeah. And I think I don't think we're at a position now where we can say that there's you know, an inherently hostile um, approach to uh, you know, a hostile regulatory environment for generative AI in Europe or, or in the UK. There's some scepticism, there's some questions being asked, but we're not at the stage where we're seeing these you know, very significant enforcement decisions when it comes to generative AI. Um, we may see them in the coming months and years, but we're not there yet. So I think what, what you say, Faye, is correct. It's all about just sort of trying to anticipate the areas that are going to be of most concern to regulators, the highest risk areas, the things that affect the most data subjects and planning from there. And on that relatively optimistic note, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. So thank you very much for listening and do look out for the next episode of Legitimately Interesting. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.